0: Hello and welcome to another episode of the Project Purple podcast. I'm Dino Varelli, founder and CEO of Project Purple. And today we're actually offsite. I've got a special, special guest with us, all the way from Israel, with us. We're in New York City. We're on the eve of the second annual PreSEED Worldwide Consortium meeting. And I've got Dr. Talia Gulan, who is the metal director of the Pancreatic Cancer Center and Phase One program at Sheba Medical Center from Israel here with us in New York City. How are you, Talia?
1: I'm great, and it's a pleasure, a true pleasure to be here, especially um, for the Proceed Consortium, which is so highly important that um, this, uh, this effort is being taken for early detection, and it's just great to be amongst friends and colleagues and to be in New York.
0: Well, uh, I'm excited, and, and full disclosure here, we've known each other since May, and we've become no before what, that. Did we know each other before? We that? met
1: at the previous um, Proceed Consortium. That's right. It was very yeah, but it was very briefly though. Yes, it was yes. very brief. We connected really in May. In May,
0: yes, at the at World, World. Pan-Cancer Coalition meeting, which you came into and spoke. Along with Dr. Good friend of yours, Dr. Diane Simeone, who's a good friend of mine, who's been on the <laughs> podcast. Diane's actually been on the podcast as well. So I'm going to call you Talia because we're friends so that we friends can Please call each do other first
1: name. It. Everyone can call me Talia. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but um, I want to welcome you to the podcast. This is really this is kind of we're going into the pre-seed weekend. It's really special for us. This is the second time the meeting has happened. But really, the first time that Project Purple has sponsored it. Uh, we invested over a million dollars to set up the database at all the 34, it's 34 centers now, which is pretty amazing. Um, there's six international partners, which Shiva is part of, which is exciting for us to have you guys involved in the consortium and looking at this thing that we call pancreatic cancer. But it's great to have you here on the podcast and have you live versus doing this on <laughs> FaceTime or via the phone. so it's it's it's, it's I'm, I'm excited as you can't tell. So as we always do with all our guests, and we have a pretty wide audience in terms of who listens to the podcast. Um, but, some people may know your name uh, because they follow you, not on social media, because you're not on social media, <laughs> which we're going to talk about. Because there's there's been this big push to uh, in the science world, especially in pancreatic cancer, t- to have doctors um, and clinicians and scientists, more so on Twitter, um, I feel. Um, and we had... Anurban, who I know you know. Oh,
1: yeah, he's a, he's the truest tw- Twitter that there is. <laughs> he, so, <laughs> I love him too. But. <laughs> quick fact on
0: Anurban, and I, I told this to him on his uh I can never podcast. compete with his Twitter, no, even no. if
1: I do decide to get onto social media.
0: Well, I don't think anyone can. <laughs> the, he has the second most Twitter followers in the pancreatic cancer sphere other than Pancan.
1: Wow, Anivan, I'm so impressed once again by you.
0: <laughs> so Anirvan gets a shout out. So, and he took credit for setting up Dr. Simeon's Twitter handle because he said he convinced her to get on Twitter. So maybe he could do the same for you. He came up with a really cool uh, nickname for her. Like her her uh, her name is Madam Surgeon. I don't know if you knew that. Uh, no, not. I didn't know that. Yeah, and he said yeah. that was like perfect for <laughs> Diane. So... Um, We have a vast audience, Um, so some people may know you from the medical community um, and what you've done in the pancreatic cancer space, but as we do, which is customary for all our guests, is we allow you the opportunity to share as much of your background, what you're doing now, you can go into your personal life, where you're from, and then we go from there. So as I always tell our guests, uh, you can go as far or as deep or as high surface as you want, and then we'll go from there.
1: So um, I'm a medical oncologist from Sheba Medical Center in Israel, as Dino said, um, and I've dedicated my professional life to treating specifically pancreatic cancer. I'm fascinated by the disease um, from a molecular and you know and genomic um, aspects, and I don't know why I can't even explain it in words, but there's something really about the patient population that from the beginning has been very has been extremely meaningful for me. I, I, I can't explain why, but it's, it's always been important for me to treat pancreatic cancer patients, maybe because other people um, vie away from the field because it's a really tough field. I've always felt very comfortable to be there for the patients, and it just seems to grow over the years and not diminish that feeling. So I'm a pancreatic cancer specialist from, it's a choice which is different for a lot of our patients and their families that wouldn't want to be here, but I actually choose to be here every day, (laughs) several times a day, and it's not changing. Um, I also have a a research lab, translational research lab, I believe. um, I've always had a fascinating interest in drug development, and as part of a drug development, uh, I've always wanted to be thoughtful about how can I could perhaps impact and the development of drugs, even in the early stages. So we have a translational lab where we have, um, with the participation of patients, we have um, established models that kind of mimic the patients over the course of their disease, and really trying to to ask questions and things that I see in the clinic in my patients. You know, I try and bring back to the lab, and we discuss it with the with the team, and try and see how we can use these signs and symptoms. Um, also to bring in the drug development and hopefully help the patients and bring in more drugs to the field. So that's kind of how my everyday is. I'm kind of busy, as you can imagine. A little. (laughs) I've also, um, you said I can say something personal. You can
0: say whatever you like. (laughs) It's public, though.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So I've also been blessed with a very, very supportive husband and four beautiful children. Um, And very, yeah, I have a very... For life, but a very blessed life.
0: And you're originally from Israel or South Africa? <laughs> yeah, South Africa. Yeah, right? so
1: my yeah my accent is very distinct, and it's a very South African accent. I was born it's very in... soothing, though. Oh, okay, I'm I happy. Could... Just don't <laughs> fall asleep. <laughs> I'm a bit jet-lagged, even though I'm quite good today. Um, I was born in South Africa in Pretoria, and um, in, in my teenage years, we moved to Israel. Um, it's a fascinating country. i'm I'm very I'm very grateful to live there. Um, we have challenges, but um, there's a lot of innovation going on. There's a lot of interesting opportunities and um I also the institution I work at, Sheba is a very robust and well recognized institution. So I also have the infrastructure and the platform to you know to, try and do some of the things that we spoke about, <laughs> even off before record, the off we can, record. <laughs> yeah, we, we, we won't talk about those, but
0: pr- prior to hitting the record button. Here.
1: Yeah, so, yeah,
0: So it's kind of my story. I wanna just back up a little bit, and this is a question that I ask pretty much 9, 99% of the clinicians that I've talked to, whether it's been on the podcast or I've met personally. You mentioned pancreatic cancer. Mm-hmm. Now, were you personally impacted by the disease?
1: Um, no, uh, no and yes. Like I can't, no, not You didn't have anyone
0: in your family, No, No, not my, not
1: my immediate family. I'm so impacted by the patients that
0: I can't answer no to that question. Well, of course. Yeah. I know it's it's a, it's a loaded question. Yeah. A bit. But what was about, if we go back to like schooling, because as, yeah. you, as people know, like you go into medical school and, and not everyone knows, right? Some people go into, you know, the medical field saying, Hey, like I want to be an OBGYN. Mm-hmm. Or I want to be an oncologist and I want to specialize in lymphoma, leukemia. Did you have that mindset going into medical school? Like, hey, I wanted to do pancreatic cancer or what was that catalyst along the way?
1: Yeah. So I have thought a lot back about that at, at that question because people are sometimes really surprised my it, it, kind of at a young stage of my career to make that kind of commitment and um, my parents are both physicians. They're truly amazing people and that you know I was really brought up in a house that um, gave a lot of um, that had a, gave a lot of emphasis on education, on striving for knowledge and answering questions, just being hungry for knowledge and and you know kind of also giving the opportunity to to try and and reach and 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 capture that kind of knowledge. But another thing that also, I think my parents, both being physicians, gave us a very balanced look about life and death and, you know, what we we're empowered for and what we're not empowered for. And I think it just gave me like a very balanced look. So when I came to oncology, I wasn't scared to go to be an oncologist because I just had this very balanced look about things. And then in oncology, like I wasn't scared to kind of take one of the harder you know, clinical fortes, I would say. So I think I just, like, where I come from has been very impactful on my decision as well.
0: So did you know when you did, because you do rounds, right? Like, you mm-hmm. go through the different diseases. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So did you know, like, right away, like, when you did your GI rotation, like, hey, this is where I was meant to be?
1: Yeah, I kind of, there was, a, there was that was, I saying that point of, like, I just, I think that maybe, a lot of other people didn't want to be in that in that like in the area because it's a really it's we have really challenging to say ongoing list. discussions yeah. with our patients with the majority of them and you know mortalities also you know very high and that's an ongoing thing as well and you have to have a certain personality to want to be there and I recognised that I had the personality and and it was very easy for me from that moment. Kind of just fell into place
0: that's pretty powerful though because <laughs> i don't know how many people that i've asked the question have answered that question that way because I usually get the response that they like the challenge
1: mm-hmm.
0: you know and sometimes okay everyone likes to do something challenging right but they don't necessarily want to put the work in right and i'm not saying that that's a bad answer right but mm-hmm. to know right away and and to accept that that's uh it's powerful
1: Yeah, I think that, you know, like when you come from a certain place and you've been, let's say the house I was brought up in, and I was very aware of my, where my strengths or my weaknesses lay, it was just easier for me to find myself, you know, in that, or kind of direct myself to places that I felt very comfortable
0: in. At a young age too.
1: Yeah, I, I've been doing this. We, <laughs> well, we were discussing not to, birthdays. Not to age ourselves. That's oh, okay. Uh, yeah. no, but I I, I, I mean,
0: any, anyone who comes in a clinician, I mean, most people, you know, I mean, in, in terms of that track or that path, I mean, they're in their early 20s or, you know, they're at a young age. They don't have the experience, let's say, of someone who's been in the business, any business for 20 years. So mm-hmm. at, a, at a very junior level or at a very early time in very immature. yeah a
1: very immature professional level it was very clear to me I think that also helped you know
0: which is a hard that's a big decision to make because you know you can always go back and do something else but I mean I don't know
1: I think that also also because of my way of life like we immigrated to Israel so I'd gone through immigration at a teenage years um and I'd I'd gone to the army as well and when I, I already had, like, family and kids when I, you know, started medicine, uh, my specialization. So I, I kind of, there was maybe, I was younger, but I think I matured through other processes as well. That was also helpful. It's
0: fascinating. Well, I mean, they, they you know, there's a thing, things happen for a reason. You know, mm-hmm. some people think they just happen. Um, but sometimes things in life just, they kind of fall in line and how they should. Mm-hmm. I want to talk about um, the differences because being over the, the the pond, as they say, you know, if you're overseas mm-hmm. in treatment and, and you're... Maybe
1: you overseas.
0: <laughs> that's right. Well, <laughs> the, the, difference, the difference... Being
1: overseas is, to each other. Correct.
0: To each other. And you have... So you have different systems, right? Mm-hmm. There's different healthcare systems. And you've traveled the world talking about what you guys are doing in Israel You've been over here in the U.S. a ton over the last couple of years, at least since I've known you. You know, we were talking before we started recording about, you know, the various conferences. But there is a different system in terms of regulation and what can be done. And we were talking a little bit about technology, about advances in Israel that we don't have here in the United States. So I just want to talk for a little bit about the differences in the medical systems, pro and maybe con, and how you see with treating this disease?
1: So I think we're just a much smaller country and there's more um, um, there's more streamlined um, medical care at a, at an average level for yep. the pancreatic cancer patients in our country. And also we're a small country, so I think patients you know can reach medical care. Well, so and quick, care and is access, quicker, yeah. yeah, and all that, you know, all the hospitals that are at a good level, and you know, the, the care that the patients will get will be very similar throughout the whole country, which is a very comforting feeling. Um, and then in the United States, like I was actually at a meeting earlier to, before this, and one of the scientists said to me, you know, can you please explain to me why some some physicians are choosing Braxan, mm-hmm. first line, and some are choosing Fulfirinox. So the only answer I could say to him was that I don't know. We just know that there's a difference between the private clinics and the academic clinics, you know. But so we don't so do have that's that a as much. I just to,
0: think the uh,
1: the system has built very differently to a lot of the European systems as well. You know, I think the um, I can't speak for all the European systems, but in some of the countries as well, there's just like a homogeneity of of the medicine. Not necessarily a higher level than you're getting in the States. It may be even a lower level, but it's more homogeneous.
0: Because it's smaller and it's more manageable, you think?
1: No, I just think the way, you know, like that the government has, because you are all through private insurances. And in Israel, for example, we're not. We have uh, three or four major um, medical um services that they actually cover and there's unity in a lot of the things that those services offer a patient can still have private insurance but it will be on top of a level the
0: level of yeah the...
1: and another and some of the other countries also in the world work on that in america is just a very different
0: it's a very complex... i'm still
1: confused by the american system so i definitely yeah. can't <laughs> i'm not well, the expert
0: to, to i'm not an insurance expert mm-hmm. but i know you know going through my dad's care as an example, and this was going back almost 10 years ago, um, you know, he had his primary insurance and then he had secondary insurance and then he had Medicaid, which is government insurance, Mm -hmm. right? And certain insurance companies would pay for certain things. But I know here in the United States, and I think this is one of the frustrations that a lot of families face is to do specific treatments, they have to do A, B, C before they can do D, E, F. And And, and those decisions are made by the insurance panels and not necessarily the the patient advocate, the patient or the oncologist. So right?
1: I think in all the countries there is like a linear approach to yeah. treatment and what drugs are available at what stage. However, like, I just think that it's more, it's, it's, um, it's more general for the population, say for in Israel, but here it's not, you know, yeah. and also just like working through the system here, just sounds so complicated. Yeah. I mean, if you don't have, you know, a very, um, you know, someone who's good at, you know, all these administrative stuffs in the family, like, it's just how do you even deal with that?
0: Yeah. And if you don't have, unfortunately, here in the United States, I mean, if you're not insured, you will get cared for at some institution. Um, But where that is, you know, who Mm -hmm. knows? Um, Not every facility is going to take someone who is uninsured and not going to give them probably quality care, um, sadly, and that's one of the things I, you know, the previous, not to bring politics into this, but, you know, the previous administration had, um, you know, tried to work to get some sort of universal healthcare coverage that was affordable. And I think that's the other thing, you know, unfortunately here in the United States that um, it all costs. It all comes at a cost, right? Like mm-hmm. health insurance, where we don't have a universal health care policy that's funded, uh, which is we do, which is Medicaid, but mm-hmm. that only covers a certain amount of care. And then you have to have secondary insurance to get D, E, and F, you know, uh, because you'll get A, B, and C, but the rest is at an additional cost. Um, so it's interesting. Do you feel, then I'm going to put you on the spot here, and, and I don't mean to put you on the spot and I, I know I've heard this from people, not often, but I've heard it in the past, where patients will go overseas to do certain treatments because those treatments are available overseas. Not necessarily in Israel, but it could be in Europe or somewhere outside of the, uh, the USA, let's say, that that's something that you see often in Israel,
1: um, no, and I must say, like I don't think a lot of USA patients travel for treatment out of USA. And I don't think actually, I think that a lot of, if I think about at least what I'm exposed to, and also through my colleagues, you know, around the globe, um, I don't think a lot of patients travel because often, like a phase three um, registration trial will be in like a lot of the countries, like we see is happening. So it's no, like it's not necessarily, it's not necessary for people. Sorry to travel. Mm. Um I think I think we see that very seldomly. So, if you really think about those cases, they seldom. They just maybe, you know, kind of stick in your mind. But yeah. they're quite I think it's quite a seldom recurrent.
0: Yeah, I haven't heard I mean, I know in the past, um, I've heard of a couple of families that have gone elsewhere to seek treatment. I think what happens here in the United States, which is quite often, is someone lives in the New York area, they will fly to North yeah. Carolina. They will Or a fly specific to, trial or correct. to
1: see a specific physician. Yeah.
0: Correct. And I think that's one of the challenges of our system as well is that there, you know, you live in New York and if the trial is based in Texas, then the only way to get the trial is to be in Texas and that becomes an access barrier. Right. Yeah. Um, and that's unfortunate sometimes. And I know, you know, there are some things that are happening with some other organizations to try to make that a streamlined process for everyone to have access to those trials. But I think that's still one of the biggest Mm -hmm. challenges of our system here in the United States is how that works. You know, Certain centers get certain trials.
1: I think that, but I mean, what I see with patients is also trying to clarify which trials are the Mm -hmm. most meaningful. And, And we often don't know. And sometimes there's been like, you know, fake news reporting, I wouldn't say fake, but out-of-context news reporting or something that, you know, misleads the patients. And it's really difficult because like, patients sometimes come to me with a list of 10 clinical trials and they say, okay, I can travel. Like, you maybe have got only these two trials. It is wrong, but I can travel. Like, should I go? And I say to them, I-, I don't have enough information to inform you in a professional manner. You know, nothing's been published. So that is also, you know... Um, something that we also, as a community, we have to acknowledge that a lot of these trials are early in stage cl- clinical tr- drug development, and it's not a must to be on them. <laughs> like it's not, you know, it's not that they're all gonna be positive and good studies. And we don't have to, patients don't have to always feel like that they're missing out on the next best thing. So that's also very important.
0: So do you feel, and, and I, th- this was one of my questions, was social media in the science community and we mm-hmm. we were joking i mean we were joking you, about uh, you going to
1: like open a twitter um yeah. Yeah. for me like at the that's, end of this is yeah. that like is no, that, no, 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 this, no. this, this is like you and annie barn and Diane's like a no, no, no. uh,
0: consortium no i am not we're not going to force you to do that but d- my question to that and since we're on this topic the you know the saying is what like knowledge is power right mm-hmm. but if it's reputable knowledge it's powerful right but if yeah. it's not the most accurate of or, or not, uh, I guess, yeah, not the most accurate of knowledge or a uh, fact. Or taken that, out of context. Correct. So do you, and in, in my question with the social media is, you know, there's been this big push on social media within the scientific community, especially in pancreatic cancer space, especially on Twitter, um, to tweet out and to, uh, you know, talk about advances in the space Um, pro and con, Uh, I've seen both sides. Do you think, though, that's a positive thing or a negative thing with the amount of information out there in the Twitter sphere, let's say, or social media sphere for patients? And maybe that's a – it's kind of a loaded question because I feel like social media, there's so much – on social media now, regardless of whether it's science or politics or religion, as we know, like the It's not filtered,
1: it's not, you see, social media is not filtered. Correct. So you're trying to say to me, can just having a specific person be the report, like he's reporting, does that make it filtered enough or academic enough or professional enough? We would hope so. But once again, it's like, I don't know, maybe like if kind of in a spur of the moment, like a one sentence Twitter remark, it, it's not the same as like, you know, say the two of us sitting here having like a 10 minute discussion on the topic.
0: Or a validated
1: trial. trial. Yeah. And also like, um, um, I actually answer questions on a social media background. And I see sometimes that, you know, like I'm very careful on what I answer. Obviously there's short answers, but it's like, you have to be very, very careful, like which words you use, mm-hmm. you know? And you have to be very clean and clear about what you're trying to say. Um, and, and, and you can still be misinterpreted.
0: Yeah, I, I couldn't agree with you more. I, we did a podcast episode yesterday that will air before yours, years with a patient. And she said how for the first month she was on the internet nonstop and it became nauseating and it became like addicting patients know the reality of what they're up against right
1: right Yeah. but
0: she said that it was just so much and then you know there's opinions of other patients or patient advocates and she just said uh, now she's uh almost she started her treatment in may so now she's uh she's almost six months post-treatment and then she's hopefully having her whipple in january But she says she hasn't gone on social media in like four months, you know, or on the Internet to search anything like she's in a, a chat group with other survivors and she finds that very therapeutic. But. I think, uh, as we said, knowledge is power, and it can be, I think, negative and positive. And mm-hmm. I think, like you said, I think it's th- there's no filter on social media. Like there's no. Um,
1: it's not just the filter; it's the presentation. Like, no. sorry, I'm giving such a terrible back no. like, um, uh, comparison. We want the truth. No, no, I'm giving I'm like a terrible. Honesty. So, like, it's like porno- pornography. Yeah. Like, there's just no, the way that the things are portrayed, have not been thought about. And it's erratic the way that the person is like opening his internet and looking at yeah. things. And that is very problematic. It's not just, so each piece of data may actually be okay, but the way that it's formatted and the way that it's being, that it's infiltrating the patient's consciousness, non consciousness, you know, yeah. is very, very problematic. And that's why, like I say to patients, you know, um, be careful, on, you, know, you, you know, you've got to have the basic, you have to understand the basic um, statistics of what we're going to deal with together. Yeah. But, you know, don't just remember that the way that you're going to um, input all that data, it's not only not filtered, it's not necessarily in the right format and context. And that can be very harmful. And I think that's what you yeah. were saying here with this patient.
0: Yeah, I mean, it, 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 you have to be very careful. Yeah. And, and I think the other thing, and this is, I want to bring this next topic up, the disease. And you've been studying this disease for a long time.
1: Not long enough, obviously. Well, yeah, but still <laughs> a, a long
0: time, longer than I have. The disease is so complex. And it seems like every patient, I mean, there are, we are finding out more, which is a good thing. And we'll talk about that in a bit about genetics and about that patient population but everyone kind of react like this lady yesterday and i'll use her as an example she's on flothorinox she's had great quality of life now she has an atm mutation which I, i'm sure that has something to do with it and i don't know the exact science behind you know how flothorinox reacts to atm but knowing that she has a gene mutation and she's doing very well in flothorinox my guesswork is that that's the reason why but we, i have another family that i know Gentleman's on and he's battling every treatment, like having awful side effects, neuropathy, nausea, loss of weight. This lady, other than like weakness in her legs and a little bit of hair loss, she's doing really good. And, you know, taste, she's got a little bit of, you know, mm-hmm. uh, she doesn't have that taste sensation anymore. So food just doesn't taste right anymore. But she, she's not nauseous. She's somewhat active. She's still working 20 hours a week. So with that being said, in your experience, and especially like we, if we can talk about, I, I think the one thing, we go back to the clinical trial discussion that we just had and the, the stuff that's out there and patients see that, why is the disease so complex? And why do we have one patient A who does very well on Flavorinox and patient B who just, you know, one or two, I've, i we've had families where the, the, the family member has done one treatment and then they, they couldn't do it anymore.
1: So specifically for pancreatic cancer, I think we have several um, several facts that are part of the reality of the pancreatic cancer patient that you know um, impact your specific question. One is that often when patients start the treatment, they have a high tumor burden, which means that they have disseminated disease into multiple organs, and I mean. I've seen like triathlon runners that like did a triathlon three weeks or four weeks before, and they can barely move like four weeks later when they're diagnosed. So it's like so how that how that tumor burden and dissemination of the disease impacts the patient's um, quality of life and performance status before he even comes and starts the treatment is a very um, it's often a very strong effect and that's very that's quite common in pancreatic cancer so you have one a high tumor burden and two that tumor burden and the disease and metabolically what it does to the patient is obviously is up is mostly in very often very significant irrespective sometimes even of the age of the patient Mm -hmm. so you kind of you're starting already at a place that's pretty low it's pretty challenging (laughs) i don't like to use the word low but you know That's pretty challenging. And then our treatments that we have to offer, the Folfarinux is a combination of three drugs, three chemotherapies an additional drug as well. And it's a tough regimen. I mean, we don't often give triplet combinations in solid tumors. It's unusual to give triplets. We normally give doublets, but pancreatic cancer um, has a lot of resistance mechanisms and it's a very aggressive disease so we have to come up against it with a, a, an aggressive intensive regimen so this is really challenging you know like I often um and I've had patients that have really you know I've, I've really tried to learn from them the lessons the critical lessons of you know chemotherapy is good but you use it wisely um you know, know when to dose reduce, monitor your patients, look at their quality of lives, listen to them, listen to what's bothering them, see what you can you do. You know, some, to these, some of these patients, we're gonna just prolong their lives by several months. If it's gonna be with a really, really low quality of life, it may not be worth it for us and for them. Mm. Those are decisions we have to have together. Um, it's challenging. It's a challenging arena to, to, from a clinical aspect. And, you know, and I think there's the philosophy of our treatments and what we want from our lives and the quality of life. It has to come in quite early in our conversations so that we can make the right decisions together.
0: Thank you for saying that, because I don't <laughs> think many clinicians, though, think about it that way. I know from my experience, my dad, we, our, our oncologists, we never had that conversation. So I appreciate you having those conversations with your patients and having that mindset of doing that.
1: And obviously, you know, it's, it's hard day to day, you know, and, may, and there may be patients obviously that feel that they're not getting that or even with me, they're not getting that, you know, uh-huh. it's often I, I've also learned that, you know, I can say things to patients or I can mean a certain thing in what I'm saying to patients. They can come out with a completely different take on what I've just said.
0: Well, because they're not thinking that way, right? They're not thinking that way. Anxiety,
1: you know, um, the reality of the the... reality, the the anxiety. um, They're just not not always able to absorb at least what I'm trying, the message Mm -hmm. I'm trying to give. And then there can be like in any miscommunication, anything, you know. Then that, you know, what happens from the miscommunication obviously can be sometimes detrimental for both sides.
0: Absolutely. I want to, you mentioned something about the triathlon and in your professional Mm -hmm. experience, you know, you said you had triathlon three weeks prior to, you know, showing symptoms Mm -hmm. of metastatic or of a tumor, you know, finishes a triathlon. And I hear about these stories often, you Mm -hmm. know, people who, you know, do these amazing feats that, you know, a healthy person would struggle through, but someone who has not been diagnosed, but then gets diagnosed soon thereafter in your professional opinion what do you think like and i've heard stu- and i've seen studies and heard talks about well you know the tumor's been there for 10 years and then until it is actually symptomatic is when you know they actually realize this so the person is living this I'm in air quotes here. If we had a video vlog mm-hmm. with our with our podcast, you'd see this, you know, living this like healthy life and this full life of running marathons or just, you know, traveling the world, whatever they're doing. And then just one day out of the blue, they become asymptomatic. They become jaundiced or they have, you know, massive abdominal pain. Um, and then they realize, wow, we have this cancer. So in your professional opinion and in your experience, do you think there's an incubation period or what does that look like? I mean, we'll talk a little bit about early detection in a minute, but.
1: So there's two, um, um, uh, this is less my field of expertise, but there are groups um, around the world that have done deep genomics on patients and pancreatic cancer patients, and they've addressed these questions. And there's two approaches, which I suppose is place for both of them. One is that this is, um, this is a, long, a long-term process, like in many solid tumors, that you've got um, um, at least a decade of the developmental, you know, from the tiny changes in the cells to the cells changing to the, to the tumor forming, and then to the metastasis. And what was um, thought is that we're just seeing the patients kind of at the end of that decade, uh, because it's really hard to visualize the pancreas. So we have objective mechanical issues, just looking and seeing and seeing the pancreas and seeing tumors in the pancreas and specifically tiny changes. And also just the symptoms are not apparent until the disease is normally widespread. And then there's another It's not alternative. It's complementary, actually, when you think about it. In some cases, they show that the genomes of those tumors reflect what I've just said, like a stepwise and longer process. But there are patients that have some fulminant um, and full-blown genomic event, and then it's a much quicker. So we're probably talking about... um, if you ask, you know, the people that do the deep genomics, so these are the people ready to ask about this. They, they can give the knowledgeable and you know and quick um, answers back. But there's probably place for both those kind of patient populations.
0: So we we need to learn more, and I mean that's mm-hmm. a fascinating thing. I think no, about. but there is a
1: window of opportunity yeah. for early detection. Like there's not, it's not a spoke in the wheel. There's, there's a, there is there is a place for early detection in pancreatic cancer. That's a widely accepted concept still.
0: So on that note, let's talk about that. <laughs> and so we're here this weekend, as we said in the beginning, for the PreSeed Consortium. And I want to talk about specifically about what you're doing there in, in Chiba a little bit um, as well. Be, you know the BRCA mutation, and I mentioned mm-hmm. we do know that. You know, it's statistically, it's, I believe, it's ten percent of all the pancreatic cancer.
1: It's it less. It's about seven, six to seven percent of the overall global. That was the overall global. Overall global. Mm-hmm.
0: Are genetic mutations? Yeah. So. Germline, yeah. Germline mutations, BRCA. Here in the United States, is one that's probably the most popular because of the breast cancer folks. And mm-hmm. some celebrities that have come out that have been BRCA, Angelina Jullet, uh came out and she had a double mastectomy and then she went and had a hysterectomy. And um, we also know that BRCA is very big in the Jewish population. Mm-hmm. Um, so would it be suffice to say, and I know before we recorded, I asked you this question. Do you know the percentage of patients that you see that are BRCA? Is it? Yeah so
1: we yeah yeah so we know that so global prevalence is around as I say 67% yeah. and then in certain ethnic populations there's a higher prevalence so for example the Ashkenazi and the other um, um, populations that are also enriched with the germline yeah. mutation a germline founder mutation um, in our population it can be up to like 10-15% of the patients that we're seeing so it's to high. have a germline. Yeah, yeah, at least double. Averages. Yeah, at yeah, d- at least double. Yeah, that's the thought. So
0: does that make the job easier knowing that? Because we do know that there are some treatment protocols that work very well with BRCA mutations. Yeah,
1: so I think that um, I always call it a two-sided saw yeah. because um, you know, like I would always say to patients, don't hope for anything. Like we deal with facts. So, you know, if you're a 70-year-old, you know, pancreatic cancer patient of mine, I'm like, don't hope for anything. The fact's already known 70 years. We're going to just put a label to it. So, you know, if it's positive, then, you know, we're going to have other treatment options for you. And that's going to make a difference. But if it's not positive, then it also has maybe better implications for your family. So let's not hope for anything. Specifically for the patients that have the germline BRCA mutation, um, it's not a prognostic factor. Doesn't seem so. If you don't identify it and you don't treat the patients in a certain way, you're not going to actually give them a better um, extension of their longevity or quality of life. So we need to actually identify the patients, and then we know how to manage them. Um, and this has been, yeah, this has really been very. Um, it's been a very powerful personal experience as well we've been involved in it cheaper for actually almost more than a decade um, we were involved in the early phase clinical studies with the BRCA population um yeah and i've had amazing mentors that you know because of them you know i also am where i am today in the pancreatic world with the BRCA ger- germline mutation
0: so at SHIBA, you guys have been doing this for quite some time. Mm-hmm. So on early detection, have you guys been studying families yeah. prior to And how do you guys go about doing that?
1: So once again, most of the information um, and most of the projects have been focused on early detection for breast cancer and then smaller projects for ovarian cancer. Um, already, I've actually been uh, interested and involved in it because... Um, my mom's actually a radiologist, and she does mammography and breast cancer. Okay. So we always laugh and say, like, you know, I've been I've been taught that the best medicine is preventative medicine, and I'm a kind of at the end of that stage. I'm not there. So um, even as a, um, I've, I've been being involved in early detection and pancreatic cancer. We've got a project that's been ongoing for many years with the Weizmann Institution. It's been definitely one of my, like, primary aims as a physician, even though. I don't actually see those patients, yeah. you know, but I I want to be involved. Sick, sick yeah. Patients, yeah, I believe that we have to be involved um, with those pa- with those families, with those high risk families, and we have to have experimental projects ongoing. And we need to firstly just you know gather all those patients together in a well annotated manner. And um, I've had several opportunities, really, to be involved with staff, including now. Proceed, thanks to also thanks to Project Purple. Project Purple.
0: So, if someone is out there that has a family member that has had pancreatic immediate family member that has had pancreatic cancer, and is not of you know the ethnic. Group like they're not Jewish, they're not Italian. You highly recommend them getting genetic testing. Them
1: yes, we do, and we have. Um, I mean, in the in the study that we did, the Polo study, for example, we have a very limited amount of Afro American patients that mm-hmm. were um, enrolled and uh, screened for the Brca mutation. So it's a very small number, so we can't say anything. You know, you not you can't give statistics on a very small number, but there was quite a high prevalence. Yeah. Um, higher than actually any of the other groups, so this has to be further explored. You know, ethnic groups that we're not thinking about, they also have to be. Det- you know, they have to be um, screened for the germline BRCA mutation. This is also part of the guidelines already. Yeah. So it's not just my personal opinion. No, no, no. <laughs>
0: I know now everyone is being screened. Yeah. And I think there's still a lot of nihilism. I think within you know, healthy patients, mm-hmm. clearly that, you know, have the opportunity to be screened. And I guess I would say I was one of those that I was like, oh, you know, why get genetic testing, even though i lost my dad and my mom had breast cancer at the time. Um, so I was just like, well, you know, what's there to do about it? Mm-hmm. Where I think that's something that, you know, precede, and there's other groups that are out there. I think now um, with genetics, you know, focusing on that genetics piece are hopefully trying, we're all trying to raise awareness for the healthy people, because as you know, if we can put people in screening and follow them, when they do get sick, we get them soon, early, I should say. And then also we know hopefully why, what triggers or how did that happen? Mm-hmm. And hopefully we can identify that for the future, but then also fix that problem.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So it's it's an interesting, I, I mean, I don't know, I, I, I still, I think here in America, there's still a lot of nihilism around genetic screening, and I don't know why. I mean, for me, it was personal, you know, and so I think maybe, maybe also
1: like it also goes back to um, like all the um, all your all your insurance policies because that yeah. also can impact right insurance Correct. policies policies well, it, it, and things. There, you can't
0: discriminate for health insurance, and there's still. Um, I come from the life insurance world, and so mm-hmm. people do recommend. Genetic counselors will recommend, "Hey, get your life insurance in order before genetic, you have genetic testing." testing. Um, but I've talked to many underwriters who write these policies, and right now in the U.S., they're not positioned to discriminate against genetic testing. Like they, they, they pull these statements. Like they can pull a physician statement when you apply for life insurance. And um, you know, if you just get a blood test, which genetic test is, then it just shows up as doing blood work. You mm. know, but if there's a mass and there's testing and screening, mm-hmm. I think that becomes the bigger issue, right? So mm-hmm. I think um, that will show up in an advanced physician statement, and then the question becomes, well, why are you doing X diagnostic mm-hmm. test? But from a blood test perspective, there isn't an issue. Um, you know, that's not going to raise a red flag with the insurance underwriters. What do you think? And this is somewhat of a loaded question, so I preface this. I've got a couple questions left. Is the biggest challenge that you face with this disease?
1: I don't know if I can put it into one specific thing. Um, the helpless, the hopelessness of the patients is very apparent and very prominent as part of what we have to uh, address in our early in our early meetings. Mm. So that would be, like, a problem. What would be the one problem.
0: But is that a schooling issue, though, you think? Like, you'd have to retrain clinicians how to deal with patients' expectations, in particular with this disease, or other diseases that are similar in Mm -hmm. terms of the severity, like Mm -hmm. pancreatic cancer, which there aren't many, Mm -hmm. I think, statistically, at least. Um.
1: Yeah, like I've always what I find like for me works best and I think for some of my patients I'm treating is that like some of these open discussions, like Mm -hmm. about let's discuss what our aims are together and let's discuss like kind of tell me I know what I would be would be like my borders or how I would define quality of life, but help me define together. Yeah. And where you know and um
0: did you learn that somehow, or did that just how you started talking to patients from day one? Because that's I've very, heard. and I, I don't mean to jump mm-hmm. in. That's very different than traditionally, mm-hmm. I think, what we see here.
1: Um, I don't know. I've always felt like that. Um, it's, I just feel that as, like as uh, as a physician, like we're not above our patients. It's 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 a it's a relationship, and relationship, you know, requires. Um, open conversations and it's just like you know that's how I just it's, it's a, you know another open you know very open conversation. Obviously there's misinterpretations of things and um, anger and there's all things that come out with any relationship. but I' I've, what I found it works with me is that I don't feel I feel that you know I'm with the patient and their family like on this on the border you know, in this very, very difficult disease. And no one really knows what's gonna be. I mean, there's patients, you know, that today are cured that I don't think would be alive. If we, you know, we we hug and rejoice every time we meet, it's like, we, we, no, we're still not quite sure, yeah. you know, how this kind of happened. So no one really knows to predict. Um, so that that's the one thing, cause you asked me like, you know. The biggest
0: challenge yeah face.
1: yeah. So that one is the hopelessness. Um, Two, I think it's really hard to get you know companies to invest in drug development in pancreatic cancer. I do early drug development, so I'm in contact with different pharmaceuticals, and I, and I love that whole world of, of innovation and new drugs. And it is harder because it's you know if you look at the negative studies of the last few years, it's a long list, <laughs> you know. And people want to succeed, not not succeed. So that's that's really challenging. Like you really have to work hard in, in making relationships with the pharmaceuticals and, you know, and, and, and showing them a path for, you know, trying to, to, to partner with you for, for pancreatic cancer. Um, So that's, I think those are the two big challenges. So it's really a, a very personal clinical challenge that mm-hmm. I just meet it every day, so like you asked me, I wasn't kind of preparing myself no, for your you, questions, no. so that's kind of just what came out. and then the others are more you know of the field, like what we, what we really challenge in the field.
0: I couldn't agree with you more, mm-hmm. on both of those. I mean, I think the the pharma and I've always said there's like at least here for the United States, there's three legs to this is philanthropy, private groups, foundations that fund research and fund patient advocate stuff. There's the government. And then there's pharma. Mm -hmm. And until we get all three of those in line, I mean, philanthropy is chugging away. There's plenty of groups. The government, not so much. And pharma, I think, is still the missing piece. I mean, there's some companies that are invested, but there's just not enough, right? And I've got friends um, that I know that are in pharma. Like, I just talked to a lady last month who works for company that I will not name. Um, but she just said, yeah, like, you know, we moved on. We, we, we tried to roll something out in that space and that it just didn't work. And, you know, numbers are the numbers, right? Like mm-hmm. they, they're for profit. So they move on. Yeah. Um, so we've got to find a way it's to a get business. Them, yeah, it's a business. So next loaded question, and I promise this will be the last hard one, and then we'll get to, to an easy one. Where are we in five years? Where do you Where do you foresee the space in terms of treatment? Well,
1: I'm a believer. You can see I'm totally optimistic. I wouldn't be, I wouldn't last a minute in so the seat you, without I, it.
0: Are you out of a job in five years? Uh, no. At,
1: I promise you, Dino, I'll find a million things to do. Well, of
0: course. No, I mean, out of Remember this. Remember that I've got
1: quite a of busy personal no, life, I eh?
0: Know, I, know. I know. All the kids and all the running. We didn't even talk about running. You're a big runner, too.
1: It. I don't know about the big running part, but uh, I'm trying to be. You are. You
0: are. Do you, where do you think that the space as a whole. If you had like a- I'm optimistic,
1: a I'm optimistic. I mean, the study, the positive study we had this year with polo study, you know, yeah. I'm optimistic. We just got to carry on just keeping, you know, working day and night.
0: So we'll have possibly an early detection protocol. Of course. Survival rate will go up. Of course. I wouldn't give a time span
1: though to, yeah. <laughs> to those questions. Of course. But definitely, yeah, of course we have to. I mean, look at the other diseases. Look at lung cancer today. Look at Which melanoma. Is fascinating, right? And melanoma, like we're just a little bit behind, but we're going to get there.
0: Well, I think with people like yourself
1: and yourself, <laughs> not, this is not about us.
0: But you know, the the, the pre-seed consortium, I think, is to give that a plug. You mm-hmm. know, you've got we've got 34 centers, six international partners. Um, you've got all these people coming together, you know, for early detection, and there's going to be so many fascinating. I, I, I wouldn't say spinoffs because spinoffs, but so many other branches that come out of this thing mm-hmm. uh, that potentially could be game-changing and revolutionary and you know could have large impact on the global scene, not just here in New York City for the disease. So it's really exciting. Second to last question for you, mm-hmm. and this is an easy one, but it might okay. take you a little. <laughs> if you weren't doing what you are doing, trying, you know, save lives and- If it wasn't and, a physician, or if it wasn't a pancreatic uh, called cancer- Called pancreatic phili- cancer, what would you clinician. be doing?
1: If I can't, I, I can't imagine not being a clinician. Like I just cannot imagine not being a clinician. Like it's so much, uh, I was actually asked in an interview in Israel, like, and I'm very happy to be in that place. Like the clinician I am is the mother I am, it's the wife I am, it's just who I, who I am. Like there's no distinct, I'm only in a different role. Like it's not a role. It's who I am. It's my. It's it's just my lifestyle. It's who I am.
0: It's powerful.
1: <laughs> it is what it is. <laughs>
0: but you embrace it and you accept it, and you're. I'm very. I'm very grateful for it. Yeah.
1: I, I'm very grateful. You know, i I love being. I love my family life, being a wife and having, four kids and all that comes with that, and, and and I never feel. And I've explained it to my kids as well. Like, I'm not in a role when I'm a physician. Like, the mother I am, at least for me, is the physician I am. Like, it's the same person doing the same or doing a different thing completely. But it's not a role. It's who I am.
0: Well, um, so I... Can't,
1: so I, don't know, I, can't, I can't imagine. But if we cured pancreatic cancer tomorrow, oh, I would be so busy doing other things.
0: <laughs> I, I don't... Discredit that, and I believe that. And I will say this for audiences audience listening at home: when we were in Miami, full disclosure here. When,
1: when we, oh, we went in Miami last in the May, in May, yeah, and
0: we met the family that you were treating. So hearing you speak, how yeah. you okay. mentioned how you are, and to see the generosity and hmm. the patient's family meet with you, and how generous they were, and just the the conversation what you just said hits home to me because it, that's how you are all so mm-hmm. thank you for the honesty and for for what you do for the pancreatic cancer community in israel and afar because what you guys are doing there impacts what happens all over the world um and so we need more clinicians like you in this fight um, and i'm honored to be in this fight with clinicians like yourself last question
1: this is the fun
0: question, right? This is the fun question. This <laughs> has a serious I mean, this conversation. Is, this, is, uh, this was a very, actually, I see, I, I, I don't tell our guests. We don't I give guests a jet the lag questions. and
1: everything, hey, wow.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's still daytime. Well, it's almost almost dinner time. Um, This is probably the most important thing. If someone who's listening to this podcast, something just, you know, hit them home, you hit them and they want to reach out to you, um, what's the best place to connect with you if someone has a question or they want to reach out um, or there's something that sparked their interest that they want to learn more from you about something you may have said is Twitter, the internet, email. I'm not on Twitter. You, they they can contact on me on Twitter. I'm not on? on no, no, I'm not on Twitter. I'm not on Twitter. So on the Twitter. best place would be to go to the Sheba Medical yeah. Center website. Yeah. And then you can scroll down and go through yeah, yeah. the directory. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Well, Dr. Golan, thank you (laughs) for being on the Project Purple podcast and sharing what you're doing. Thank you again for all the work you do in the community that we call this pancreatic cancer community. It's somewhat of a family. Um, The Marathon.
1: The half marathon. Yes, and Talia will we'll be about back. That. Yes, you, so
0: we, we didn't talk about. Oh wait, running. let me.
1: So wait, let me give my side of the story. Okay, <laughs> until now you've full been full disclosure. Until now you've been controlling the interview. So when I met you in May, I really liked the whole concept of you know I heard your personal story and no I listened. No one's ever done
0: this. No one's ever turned the mic on the other side. <laughs> well, it's always first time. <laughs> <It's-> <laughs>
1: Um, and I listened to your personal story and I listened to what you tried to do from your personal suffering and loss. And I really liked it. It really kind of, you know, it was I just liked the, I liked the thought process you had gone through and the decisions you had made, your personal life decisions that you had made. And and I and I'm a person I, I I I believe a lot about the word endurance has got a lot of impact on me and that was brought up several times in your conversation with me when you explained to me how you felt about pancreatic cancer and how you felt about doing something about pancreatic cancer and I thought to myself hey like I want to do something for this guy because you know this is amazing and then you know you said to me and you know I do marathons and i'm like oh no dude that's <laughs> too. <you." laughs> i'm like you know i mean i like running but i'm doing like four six k's you know what marathon that's too fun i don't like pushing i don't I, i'm that's another story i don't, I don't i'm not a big believer in marathons for myself personally so when you said you know we've got the half marathon in new york in march
0: which is my favorite and it's probably the most iconic half marathon in the country, in the United States, I think. Maybe in the world, because you get to go through Times Square and you go over a bridge and you end in historic Central Park. You actually end at the finish line of the full marathon, except going in the opposite direction. So there, there's, I get chills just talking about it.
1: Okay, so I was like, you know what, Tina? I'm going to do that for you. I'm yeah. going to run for Project Purple. Like, and you be running. My- yeah, and then what was so beautiful, what it was like... It was like planting a seed. Like I came home, and then like this friend, like you know, our case manager who's very involved, were like, "I'm going to run with you too." And then this wonderful patient of mine, um, who I'm treating, who's very very special, and he's like a marathon runner. And what I put up, my conversations with him were like, "Okay, before we started the full and you know, asks how much are you running?" So it was like, you know, well, two, three weeks a bit before I knew I was diagnosed, isn't this what I was running? So I said to him, well, listen, you know, with the Fulfurinox, you're going to be running as well. Like this is not full ITs, so you yeah. better just, you know, keep up to your standard. So, you know, I like ask him each time he comes, you know, how much are you running? What are you doing? So he walked into my office. I said to him, oh my gosh, guess what? He says, what? I said, you're going to run the half marathon for me. For Dino and Project Purple. He's like, what? <laughs> he
0: has
1: no idea. <laughs> so now we have
0: a wonderful total.
1: patient, and I've got some surgeons. And Your we've got a yeah, we'll have to see about that because she has a school activity. <laughs> <laughs> so we're still in debate about it. Um, but we're gonna have a group of around 10 people.
0: From Israel.
1: From Shiva Medical yeah. Center, who are gonna be um, obviously, running for Sheep you know, in you know, running for our institution, but we're contributing to Project Purple, and I think that that's amazing. And when, do you know, I can't even tell you like the emails and the SMSs and the excitement of the group, like to be doing this together, and it's we're not doing this for Sheba, we're doing this as Sheba for Project Purple, and we're very proud.
0: You're gonna get emotional. So I don't
1: know if we're gonna. <laughs> I Better, I better manage to finish that run, otherwise, it's gonna
0: be like you guys will just get too it. much. Um, you'll get through it, and I hope so. Uh, I think I've it, still
1: got a while, let me tell you, I'm only on 10k's. We, we got
0: four mile we got four months, so it's we not got, four months, I'm counting, it's like less, three it's three months, and a half. Three and a half, that's three so and a half. I was, I and was, I'm not yet there, it's going up. I average up, uh, looking at the positive, we got plenty <laughs> of time. Um, I think it's going to be magical. I mean, to be honest, full disclosure, that is my, m- my favorite half marathon. Um, I don't run it often anymore just because, and we've been in it now as an official charity partner, I think almost, this might be seventh or eighth year. I can't remember. Amazing. And, um, you know, it, it's just a really, really special race. And I think anytime that we have clinicians and, and survivors running for us, regardless of the distance, even if it's a 5k.
1: And patients on treatment.
0: It becomes really, really special, you know. So I think that's something that I'm really looking forward to. March. I know the weather. We've been joking, you know. It's cold now here. It might be around the same temperature. It might be a little bit colder. So we'll, you know, we don't we don't stress about the weather until race week end uh, because we we can't predict that, you know okay. the, the but, I may be um,
1: running with a, um, with a, with a, with a sleeping bag or something like that. Some right. Sort of, yeah. <laughs> but as we said on the walkover, when
0: you run, your body heats up a bit, so you don't want to wear too much, but that will be a special weekend. Um, it'll be a special run for the obvious and we appreciate the support and it's really special. I think, um, so your gesture of running has now spurred on not only have you have the 10 from shiva coming of patients and surgeons and clinicians but now we've got a team from NYU. We've got clinicians from Mayo. We've got clinicians from, I think, Ohio State.
1: The competition Uh, is out there, guys. The competition is
0: forming. So uh, if any other clinicians are listening to this, you're more than (laughs) welcome to join our team. Yale just emailed me yesterday about someone from the Yale team getting involved uh, there uh, for the race. So it's going to be a lot of fun. I can't wait. But there's a lot of Me time too. between now and March.
1: Thank goodness, because <laughs> I would not finish a half marathon today. <laughs> no, no,
0: no. And as I always tell our runners, the pressure of you winning, you have to take off. So oh, reg- th- the there's time, no pressure. The there's time no time there, no. is irrelevant. Time it's about, is time is irrelevant to worrying, and, and, it, and it's really about this journey. We're all on a journey, right, mm-hmm. in life, and you know, you mentioned, you know, with the way you you are with your life with your family and your patients and that journey. And I look at the experience that the runners have with us on this journey. um, It's almost like a pilgrimage almost to the end, which is, you know, the race, but then that journey still continues on, we hope, um, you know, to be involved and to advocate and bring awareness. So it's really, really special. So thank you, Talia for your time and as we say here on the project purple podcast that's a wrap of another episode of the project purple podcast